Well, good morning, guys. Good morning. I got for you. Look at that. We're off to a good start. Uh, guys, before we jump into this lesson on Elijah, let me just uh, lead us in prayer, if you would bow your heads with me. Father God, um, Lord, I want to lift up this time and just pray that you would use it for your glory. Uh, I pray that through this lesson, you would just prepare our hearts to be drawn closer to you in love and in faithfulness. And, uh, and we pray all this in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, guys. Well, I feel like I've been reviewing this lesson for about the last two months. So hopefully this will come out cohesively and you'll get something out of it. I'm sure you will. I've gotten a ton out of it. So much so that we've been pruning this thing down for about the last four weeks. Um, as you guys know, this, this lesson series is called Flawed Yet Faithful. And the subtitle is Ordinary Men Who Made a Difference. Uh, when we were going around brainstorming on, on guys that we were going to choose to do our two-part lessons on, you know, it just kind of popped into my head, well, hey, I'll do Elijah, you know, and, and that seemed like it, it worked for everybody. And uh, once I, I, I made a hard commit to it, I started flipping through scripture and, uh, and I started reading New Testament verses on Elijah. And, I mean, he, he's a superstar in, in New Testament. Uh, Jesus Christ is mistaken for the prophet Elijah. John the Baptist is mistaken for the prophet Elijah. Uh, when, when Jesus reveals himself in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, who shows up? Moses, you know, the great lawgiver, and Elijah the prophet. So the more and more I read it, the more and more I thought, man, I've screwed up. I've picked a guy who's a superhero. Nobody, including me, is going to be able to identify with him. And then I read James 5.17, and I've put this at the top of your handout. Uh, the inspired word of God tells us this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Uh, that's huge because, you know, I, to use, to use Ken's imagery, I thought Elijah was this, I thought he was the perfect pot and I thought, oh, well, great. I'm going to tell him a story about phenomenal things happening in scripture and everyone's going to say, wow, I wish I could be a superhero, but that's never going to happen. But when I read James 5:17, it reminds me that Elijah is a cracked pot, just like us. He's an ordinary man. Now, does God use him powerfully? Absolutely. Um, same thing in the life of these other men we've been studying, and we're going to get to that. Um, uh, let me just set the stage for the lesson. First, we're going to talk about this phenomenal uh, showdown, if you want to call it that, between Elijah and some pagan prophets on Mount Carmel. Then we're going to move into how God prepared him for that phenomenal act of faith. And then finally, we're going to look at what happened in the aftermath uh, after this phenomenal experience. And then we'll wrap up with some application. Um, I need to set the stage for you. Uh, a lot of you, and if you're anything like I was before I started studying Elijah, you probably haven't uh, brushed up on your first Kings chapter 17 through 19 recently. So I've read that thing now about 4,000 times. So let me just frame this, this experience for you on Mount Carmel. It takes place in first Kings chapter 18. 
And uh, really the backdrop of it is a promise that God makes hundreds of years before in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 17. Essentially, and, and, and he says this in a couple other places also, including Judges, but essentially says, Israel, if you prostitute yourself to pagan gods, to false idols, I'm going to hold up the heavens. I'm going to shut up the heavens. Not a drop of rain is going to fall on your land. Nothing's going to grow. And that... That's how I'm going to discipline you. And so hundreds of years later, he fulfills this through the prophet Elijah and holds up the rain and causes a three and a half year drought. That's the prelude to the Mount Carmel experience. The prophet Elijah, I asked myself the question, okay, who was this guy? He's such a heavy hitter in the New Testament. He's doing these amazing things in the Old Testament. What do we know about him? You know, Moses, we get a lot about him. Joseph, we get a lot about him. Elijah, we don't get so much about Elijah. Uh, Elijah, essentially his entire history is wrapped up into uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, where essentially it says, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, dot, dot, dot. That's it. That's what we get. So we've got a, a guy named Elijah who's from a place called Tishbe, where we don't even know where that is. And he's of the settlers of Gilead. Now, we do know that Elijah means my God is Yahweh. So his name is a testament to his faith in God. Okay, that's important. Uh, we also know that Gilead was a mountainous region east of the Jordan River. So the Jordan kind of splits north and south, splits Israel. This mountainous region to the east of it was this area called Gilead. So what we have is, is a, a mountain man. Think Grizzly Adams in your head, okay? Looks actually a lot like John the Baptist, uh, who he was mistaken for uh, in the New Testament. He's, you know, animal skin, leather belt, probably didn't smell great. Uh, showing up in this fragrant, feminine, luxurious palace in Samaria with King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. So this is the guy God chooses, right? This mountain man named Elijah. The people, uh, the people of Israel, if you've read any of the Old Testament and really the entire Bible, you know that there's this fluctuation of the Israelites in their faith. And at this specific point in uh, Israel's history, the, the, the kingdom of Israel had already been divided into the north and south kingdom. The north kingdom being Israel, the south being Judah. We're in Israel. This is where all this takes place in the north kingdom. But there's, I think there's 22 different kings that the north kingdom has throughout the couple hundred years that they're split. And the guy who's king when Elijah steps up to bat is the, and scripture tells us this in chapter 16 of 1 Kings, he's the worst, most evil king that Israel had ever had or would ever have. So that's the situation Elijah steps into. The people are practicing syncretism. Uh, it's kind of like what people do today. They say, oh yeah, everything's dandy. I'm going to worship Yahweh. He's the true God. Praise Yahweh. Uh, but he can't get this done, so I'll go over here and, and worship this false idol, or I'll, I'll, I'll commit idolatry, or I'll prostitute myself out to some other god in my life. So this is essentially what they're doing. They're sitting on the fence and worshiping God and these other pagan influences. The pagan influence itself was heavily influential on the nation of Israel. In fact, our boy Ahab, the king, uh, not only was he evil, but he married an evil Gentile woman who happened to be the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, which is this Gentile people to the north of, of Israel. It just so happens that uh, outside of, of Sidon, 
where the Sidonians are from, that's where Baal worship originated. Okay, so the Baals and the Asherahs that you hear about in the Old Testament, he marries the daughter of the king of the region where this stuff originates. Okay, brings her into the castle in Samaria, the palace, and and she, what do you think she does? She brings in hundreds of pagan prophets and prostitutes uh, herself uh, to false gods, but also leads the people to prostitute themselves to these false gods, and specifically Baal. Uh, the, the place of Carmel, and, and, and this will finish setting the stage, this mountain is significant. In fact, when Ken and the pastors went to Israel, they went up on this Mount Carmel range. It's, it's essentially this range that starts out at the Mediterranean Ocean and kind of winds its way southeasterly. Uh, and sort of due west of, of, of the palace in Samaria at the time. But it's an interesting place. Uh, it's an old haunt for Baal worship, okay? Old altars to Baal. You know, they'd go worship these false gods in the high places. So it's an old haunt for Baal worshipers. And it's, it's roughly halfway in between the origination of Baal worship and Yahweh worship, okay? So it's sort of home turf for the, the pagan prophets, but it's still kind of a showdown spot. It's kind of like Red River Shootout. Uh, if that can put it in context for you. And the pagans were Oklahoma, if you're wondering about that metaphor. Yeah, I know. My dad, my dad went to OU, so I'm going to hear about that later. Um, so anyway, let's, let's move into the Mount Carmel experience. This is one of the most epic showdowns in all of Old Testament history, as far as I'm concerned. It's fantastic. It's so phenomenal. It's so epic that I have a hard time relating, as I, as I said at the beginning. Um, basically, just to boil it down, Elijah demonstrates an incredible faithfulness to God, an incredible trust in God and in his power and in his promises. Uh, he focuses on God so much so that he's able to stand against these completely overwhelming odds. And we'll look at those uh, in, in a second. I want to read you this quote, and I think it's up here. Uh, when this guy says, surely you're not going to go before King Ahab, he wants to kill you. Uh, Ahab said, or, uh, Elijah says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And I look at that and that, that sets the tone. I mean, it's, I know who God is. I know how powerful he is. He's the Lord of heavenly hosts or angelic armies. And I stand before him and that allowed Elijah to stand. And this is your blank under challenge, it allowed Elijah to stand confidently before the evil king of Israel, who had an, a, a tremendous amount of power relative to other people. Uh, but it's because Elijah knew that he already stood before the true God of Israel that was infinitely more powerful than Ahab. Um, so here's how it works. Here's how the challenge works. Elijah shows up to this king who wants to kill him because Elijah was the guy three and a half years earlier who knocked on his door, actually probably burst into his palace and upset you know, his party and said, hey, I'm, I'm shutting up the heavens by the word of God until I say, essentially. And so Ahab and Jezebel start slaughtering prophets of God and, and, and search all the nations for, for Elijah to put him to death. And Elijah goes right up to him uh, while he's traveling and uh, and calls him out and says, listen, this isn't my problem. I'm not troubling Israel. This is your problem and your father's problem. You guys have prostituted Israel. You've led Israel to, to 
pick up worship of these false gods. You've imported this pagan influence and this is why you're experiencing a drought and a famine. Uh, and, and he says, so here's what's going to happen, King Ahab. Okay, and Ahab's all ears, I'm sure, at this point. He, sa- he says, call all the people of Israel, everyone. Call them all, thousands and thousands of people. Call them to Mount Carmel. And then I want you to go get the 450 prophets of Baal, the, the, the male deity that they've been worshiping. And I want you to get 400 more prophets of Asherah, the female deity that they had been worshiping. Okay, these are fertility gods and goddesses. He says, bring them to Mount Carmel. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna figure this thing out, okay? So, uh, and I love this quote from 2 Kings. It says, uh, and again, this sets the tone for the showdown. It says, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And it's this idea that Elijah knew who was on his side. He didn't care who was on the other side. And, and that was helpful. Uh, in fact, Elijah stands under the contest. He stands against a whole host, 850 prophets, and specifically 450 prophets of Baal. He stands before him. And the reason he's able to do that is because he knows that he already stands before the Lord of heavenly hosts. These angelic armies, two-thirds of the angels of heaven, uh, stand in, in the multitudes of God's armies ready to go at God's commandment. And Elijah recognizes that he's serving this, this powerful God. Okay, the, the, the odds are 450 to 1. Okay, this, it's overwhelming when I think about it, but this isn't unprecedented. In fact, when, when Dr. Cecil, when Doug was talking about uh, Gideon, he mentioned that Gideon took 300 Israelites up against 135,000 Midianites. If you do the math, and I'm not a math guy, but that's exactly the same ratio as Elijah. It's 450 to 1. So it's not unprecedented. And in fact, Elijah knows this. And, and so he can even be more confident about going up against them. First thing Elijah does when everyone gets there, he rebukes the people. He says, you know, you guys are, are, are sitting on the fence. You're hesitating between two opinions. If God is who he says he is, worship God. If Baal is who he says he is, worship Baal. Okay, then he sets this showdown up. He puts two altars up, one for the prophets of Baal, one for him. He gives the prophets of Baal the first shot. And basically, whoever can call their God to bring fire down to consume the burnt offering is the true God. Okay, so the people say, "Okay, that's good. So he gives the Baal worshippers the first shot. And if you can imagine this, here's 450 prophets of Baal in these sort of feminine nightgown looking things, dancing around this altar with this slaughtered ox on it, and, and, and nothing's happening. I mean, they're calling, oh, Baal, bring to, and Baal's a lightning god. It shouldn't be too tough for him, right? He just zap it with some lightning. No answer. For the better part of a day, from early morning to mid-afternoon, they dance around. They cut themselves in ritualistic bleeding ceremonies and, and, and not a peep. Uh, and in fact, Elijah even gets up and mocks them and says, you know, almost in a cocky way, says, hey guys, maybe Baal's preoccupied. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's gone aside, which is a euphemism for maybe he's kind of stepped off the path and he's sitting on his throne, so to speak. Um, maybe he's vacationing, who knows? Maybe he's in Tahiti, uh, or perhaps he's asleep and you should just speak louder. So this, this is like the only, uh, sarcasm I found in the Bible up to this point, but, uh, he's almost to the point of cockiness. And, and then when it becomes Elijah's turn, when it's obvious Baal's not going to respond, Elijah prays to God. And again, this gets back to the fact that he's focusing on God 
and, and not on his circumstances. And uh, he basically prays, God, let yourself be known to these people. Reveal yourself to these people as I know you, the true God of Israel. Reveal me to be your servant, that everything I'm doing is according to your word, uh, or my relationship with you. And then finally, show these people that you've turned their hearts back again. Show them that you've brought them back to repentance and true worship of you. God answers. Uh, in the climax of it, basically Baal is shown to be impotent, while Yahweh is shown to be omnipotent or all-powerful. Uh, he brings fire from heaven. He, he not only consumes the sacrifice, but they had watered it down with 12 jugs of water, and he consumes everything. The fire consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the rocks on the altar. It licks up the water in the trenches that they had poured, that had accumulated around it. I mean, he gets everything in fire. And of course, you know, what would you do when you see this? Uh, the people responded with worship. They said, Praise God, Yahweh is the true God. Uh, and then Elijah had him kill the 850 prophets that Jezebel had been feeding at her table for the last couple of years. Um, there's one last thing to do. Water. Rain has to return. So he's, he's, God has shown that he can bring fire from heaven. Now it's, can he bring water back from heaven? Something that Baal should have been able to do as a thunder God and a God of fertility. Uh, and, and he does. Elijah prays to God. He prays persistently to God in verse 42 and actually his servant goes back seven times to this peak overlooking the Mediterranean Ocean looking for thunderclouds on the horizon coming eastward from the ocean and um, finally on the seventh time he says yep it's coming he says Ahab you better hitch up your your chariot and get to Jezreel because uh, there's going to be a frog strangler if, if you guys are into the Texanisms. Uh, this is going to be more rain than you've ever seen in your life. And so basically Ahab hitches up, rejoices, hey, rain coming back and, and heads to Jezreel. Okay, that's Mount Carmel. Pretty fantastic. Uh, I want to go into how did God prepare the prophet Elijah to do this phenomenal display of faith on Mount Carmel. And then we're going to look at uh, what happened in the aftermath. Um, the road to Carmel, section two is what I've got it entitled. There's really three main areas of training, if you want to think of it in terms of like basic training, building Elijah's faith in God and building Elijah's relationship with God such that three and a half years later he could stand on Mount Carmel and do what we just talked about him doing. The first one is a brook by the name of Kareth. The second one is a town by the name of Zarephath. And the third is a gentleman by the name, I don't know if he's a gentleman, he's a guy anyway, by the name of Obadiah. Kareth. Uh, I get excited about this because it's so, this is the stuff you read and you go, ah, boring mundane details, skip it, you know, but th these things are packed with meaning. Uh, as soon as God calls Elijah to basically step in and, and, and proclaim the drought, he, Elijah's thinking, okay, my prophetic ministry is here. I finally, it's arrived, you know. Hey, Ahab, hey, Jezebel, bad. You've done a bad thing. Now I'm going to prophesy against you. And he's, God's really put him in this spotlight nationally as far as his prophetic ministry. And then all of a sudden, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah after he proclaims the drought and says, hey, I want you to head over to a brook called Kareth. It's just east of the Jordan. It's in a deep ravine. It's on the slopes of the mountains down to the Jordan River. And um, you're going to stay there by yourself for an indefinite amount of time. And, you know, I'd be asking, gosh, God, I thought you prepared me for prophetic ministry. Why are you isolating me from all the people I'm supposed to prophesy to? Uh, but of course, 
Uh, he doesn't say that. He, he steps out in faith. Kareth is interesting. It means a place of cutting, as in the cutting of a deep ravine by water erosion or earthquake. Uh, this is where Elijah's faith is deepened. It's deepened through his circumstances. Um, you just get the idea of this, you know, God sends him to this shelter in this ravine that's been cut by years and years and years and years of water just going over this rock and cutting into it this deep ravine. You get this idea of his, his faith and his relationship with God being shaped and being molded, uh, deepened through this experience. And it's really kind of a neat experience. Um, again, he sends him away from his prophetic ministry and he tells him, okay, We've got a drought. We're soon to have a famine in the land. Here's what I'm going to do, Elijah. I'm going to provide food by ravens, crows, and I'm going to provide water by a brook. There's a couple things that are weird about that if you didn't already pick up on the fact that ravens are going to be bringing him food. Uh, Ravens are a notoriously unreliable source of food for even their own children, even their own young. They're notorious for neglecting in terms of provision. Okay, and yet they're going to twice a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, drop like meat and berries and bread and stuff from the sky so that he'll have plenty of stuff to eat. And I guess they can fly further distances to get the food during the famine. And I guess that's the point. But they're also a detestable source of food. In Leviticus, when it goes through the list of all the unclean birds, it says all types of crows are unclean. That's ravens here. Same thing in the Old Testament. So he says, hey, I'm going to provide supernatural provision of food through ravens who notoriously neglect their young and they're going to drop stuff on you twice daily until I say so. And Elijah says, well, okay, done. Uh, The the, the second provision is even more sort of um, seems nonsensical uh, at first glance. Okay, the brook Kareth is a brook. These brooks that fed down into the Jordan River from the mountains, they're wadis, okay? They're, they're seasonal streams that on a good year of rain, they're dry throughout the entire summer, okay? In a drought, which he just proclaimed from his own lips, it's, it's a ticking, I mean, it's a ticking clock when the water's going to run. The water has already started to run out at this point. It's, it's an unreliable source of water, especially in a drought. And Uh, Lo and behold, the brook dries up. There's no rain. You know, and at this point, I'd be saying, okay, God, was this really a good idea? I mean, come on. There's plenty of springs around. Couldn't you have led me to a spring or a well or something that wouldn't run out? Uh, and, and, and yet he doesn't say that. He, he, he acts faithfully. And, and when it says the brook dries up, it, it doesn't just, you know, there's no more water. We're talking about every day Elijah watches the trickle get smaller and slower and smaller until it's like mud puddles. Okay, and you're trying to get the dirt out so that you can sip it up. And I don't know how long he was there, but uh, long enough to challenge his faith. Um, And then the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, "Okay, Elijah, I'm going to send you to Zarephath. And it's in Zarephath that Elijah's faith is purified, purified through his circumstances. Now, Zarephath also has some meaning that I didn't pick up the first 400 times I read this. But luckily, we have commentaries that brilliant people tell us all these things. Uh, Zarephath actually means a smelting shop. 
It's sort of a weird word. And if you didn't grow up in an iron foundry, you might not know what that means. It's a workshop for the refining and smelting of metals. Smelting is heating up ore and burning off the, the impurities in ores to separate out the pure metal. So again, you get this amazing picture of God burning out the impurities from Elijah, from his faith, from his heart, from his relationship with God, and, and really purifying him. Now, there's a couple weird things about this. First of all, Zarephath is not in Israel, okay? If you're wondering where it is, it's smack dab in the middle of Baal Worship Central. It's in the land of the Sidonians that Jezebel came from and brought Baal Worship with her from. Probably most of the prophets are from here. Um, But it's north of Israel. It's a Gentile village. And lo and behold, he's going to send him into enemy territory. And not only that, he's going to send him to be provided for by a widow, the absolute poorest of the poor of the social strata in that day and age. It's an agrarian society. She can't even sustain herself. And we find out that she, she has run out of food when he gets there. She's an unreliable source of provision. She's gathering sticks when he walks up to her, which means she can't even pay for fuel. She has to go gather twigs to start a fire to bake the little bit of flour and oil into bread that she has. She's also, just like the ravens, a detestable source of food. She's a Gentile. Gentiles are, are detestable. They're unclean to Jews. So she's an unreliable, detestable source. And guess what? He walks up to her and says, hey, can I get a jar of water? She says, no sweat. I'm on it. He says, hey, can I get a little cake of bread too? She says, funny you should say that. She kind of breaks down, says, I just have a little bit of flour left. I'm going to gather sticks to make some bread to give my son and I one last tiny meager meal. And then we're going to die. Basically, she's hopeless. And he says, no, you're not. He says, God's going to provide. You're never going to run out of oil in that jar and you're never going to run out of flour until God brings rain back on the land. And at this point, she's a Gentile. She knows of the true God, but I don't think she's a true worshiper. And she goes, okay, let's see. Let's see if that works. Lo and behold, God miraculously provides. And it's just a wonderful picture of how, why why'd the brook dry up? If the brook never dried up, he wouldn't be in Zarephath, but yet he is in Zarephath in in ridiculous circumstances or that would seem so to us, and yet God's got a plan. Elijah becomes a circumstance in the life of this Gentile woman and is a testament to the truth and power of God, the true God, Yahweh, in the center of Baal worship central. Now, if that's not cool, I don't know what is. Um, A funny thing happens after that. Kid doesn't die of hunger. Widow doesn't die of hunger. Elijah moves in, lives there for many days. They're all happy and cheery and everything's wonderful in the famine. And then the son gets sick and dies. This is where I say, where were you on that one, God? You know, we're, we're, we're sitting here eating and being merry and I'm living on the roof and you've saved the kid and you've saved this woman and the son dies anyway. We haven't run out of food. He gets sick and he dies. Where were you on this one, God? But what does Elijah say? Does he say that? Is he confused? Absolutely. Is, is he a little bit upset by the situation? Absolutely. But you know what he does? He doesn't explain things. The woman is distraught. She thinks it's her sin and she's getting punished. And she asks, why are you punishing me for my sin? Why'd you even show up here? Why didn't you just let us die? I mean, that sounds familiar in Old Testament history. He takes the boy from her. 
he walks up to the roof, he lies the boy down and prays persistently. Three times he prays for something completely unheard of, resurrection. We get so used to resurrection when we read through the entire Bible because of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But at this point in in history, that's never happened before. There has never been a resurrection. And so Elijah had to have faith that God could bring this boy back to life. He prays three times, stretching himself out on the boy, praying, God, give the breath back to him, bring life back into him. And God does. Uh, The third area is is a gentleman by the name of Obadiah. Obadiah is in charge of the palace of uh, Jezebel and Ahab. He's a true believer. And basically King Ahab says, Hey, Obadiah, we're going to go out and we're going to find some water. Okay. God gives Elijah a sneak peek of unknown circumstances through this meeting, this chance encounter with, with Obadiah. Of course, we know it's not a chance. Basically King Ahab and Obadiah split up Israel and they're going to survey the land for springs of water. Ahab turns to self-effort. He doesn't pray to God. He doesn't repent. He turns to self-effort and tries to find it himself. Well, while Obadiah's, King Ahab's walking by sight, Obadiah's walking and Elijah bumps into him. And God wants Elijah to walk by faith. He's about to put him up on Mount Carmel. He wants him to walk by faith. And, and Obadiah says this. He says, didn't you hear, Elijah? I saved a hundred prophets of Yahweh from Jezebel's persecution since you've been gone, I hid them, a hundred of them, during a famine with a drought in the land, in a cave, and provided for them. And really the Lord provided for them through Obadiah. And, you know, I blew past this several times reading these things, but then I look back and I go, you know what God's telling him? He's saying, listen, my child, you're about to go up and do some pretty amazing things in my name. But just remember, I'm working behind the scenes. I always am working behind the scenes. And you're not always. In fact, most of the time, you're not going to know what I'm doing behind the scenes. Uh, But I'm working behind the scenes. And secondly, you're not alone. It's not you against the world. I've got other people. I'm working in their lives. I'm preparing them for this. Um, So... At this point, you know, Elijah's prepared. Now we're going to look at what happens after Mount Carmel. If anyone knows this story, you know that a dramatic thing happens and it baffles my mind, uh, just the, the, the drama of this and how quickly this thing comes about. But basically, Elijah sends Ahab back to Jezreel after the rain comes on the land. He girds up his tunic or puts his cloak in his belt And then the hand of the Lord, it says, was on him. And he runs the 17 miles to Jezreel, where the palace of Ahab and Jezebel is, and beats Ahab's chariots there. Okay? Supernatural strength to get there. And he sits there. And you know what? I think, and this is a little bit of conjecture, so you guys read the scripture and find out for yourself. But I'm led to believe that Elijah's expectations went beyond God's revealed plan and God's will. Uh, Elijah runs ahead. We know that he's enthusiastic. He wants to see the results. He probably wants to see the look on Jezebel's face when her husband says, guess what, honey? The true God Yahweh did some amazing things on Mount Carmel and 850 of the prophets that you've been feeding for the last three and a half years have been slain. And I think, I think, I would, I would think Gosh, I can't wait to see a look on her face. She's going to be despairing. She's going to be defeated. She's going to be despondent, disappointed. Ahab's probably going to put her to death because she's a pagan or send her back to her dad in, in the land of the Sidonians. So he's sitting there, and, and I almost think he's giddy. He gets there before the chariot does. 
And so Ahab tells the story with one minor detail left out, major detail left out. He doesn't mention Yahweh. He says, honey, honey, look at what Elijah the prophet did. He, and, and he also, and he slew all your prophets. He killed your prophets. He embarrassed you. He embarrassed me. And he caused a lot of problems for us. And what do you think Jezebel does? You think she cowers down? She says, oh, I'm so defeated. They've killed all my pagan prophets. No, she reaffirms her faith in false gods. She says, she sends a messenger to Elijah in Jezreel in the same city and says, may my gods do worse to me if I don't make you like one of those slain prophets of mine by this time tomorrow. I'm going to hunt you down. I'm going to use everything I've got to kill you by this time tomorrow. And something crazy happens. After this guy stands up against 450 prophets of Baal, does these amazing things, it says in chapter 19, and he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Uh, It's a one-two combo. Basically, if you know anything about boxing, a one-two combo is the most famous boxing combo. It's a jab and a cross. And the jab knocks someone off balance, confuses them, and hides a cross that's waiting to put the full weight of the punch in on a pivot into that person and knock them down. That's what happened to Elijah. He allowed his expectations to exceed uh, God's plans. He was focused on his circumstances at some point in there, and it led to unmet expectations. And as we all know, in our own lives, unmet expectations lead to disappointment. Disappointment opens the door for doubt and and despair and and, and ultimate hopelessness. Uh, So that's what happens. Elijah became vulnerable to attack. And Elijah ends up alone and hopeless under a juniper tree, about a 10-foot tall desert shrub. He, he runs in his own strength. After running 17 miles, he runs in his, in his own strength 120 miles south from the very top of Israel, the northern kingdom, to the very southernmost city in Judah, Beersheba, leaves his attendant, completely isolates himself, goes a full day's journey beyond that in a land ravaged by famine and drought and sits under a 12-foot shrub and says, I'm no better than my father's. I just want to die. Enough is enough. I'm done. So what happened? I say, I read Ephesians 6. It says, it says, we're to be equipped with the shield of faith to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the enemy. I think what happened is he had that shield of faith up the whole time because he was focused on God. But at some point, his focus dropped down to his circumstances He began to focus on his circumstances. He allowed his expectations to exceed God's will and God's revealed plan. And all of a sudden, a big flaming arrow hit him smack dab in the chest. And he began to doubt. And that unraveled him. I got to tell you, discouragement, disappointment, feeling hopeless, ready to throw in the towel. Yeah, I went through that four times this last week getting ready for this lesson. So we could have had some really fruitful conversation. Maybe if you want to grab coffee, we can talk about that. But uh, let, me, let me hit up three real quick points of application that I think is absolutely necessary for you guys before you walk out of here. And Dan, I'll get to you later. I'll send it to you via email. Um, first of all, God wants relationship. Would you believe me if I told you that? That in all circumstances, in all situations, God's concerned about his relationship with each one of us. 
that we're not chess pieces, uh, that we're children of God. God wants a relationship with each of us. And guess what we often want? Results. We often want results because you know what? We sometimes, not all the time, but, but sometimes I slip into seeing God as a cosmic vending machine or some sort of genie in a bottle that I conjure up to fix my circumstances or to do something. It's almost like a ball of cosmic energy I tap into in some sort of Eastern fashion to get supernatural things done when I'm up against a wall. Uh, We often want a resource. We define success in terms of results, don't we? Do you guys ever look back at the Old Testament prophets or or even Jesus himself, the disciples' view on Jesus when he gets crucified? And they kind of go, really? Like, really? Wasn't he supposed to be the, and get the results and overthrow the Romans and really? You know, we look at the prophets and we go, gosh, were they successful? They got sawn in half and nobody changed, you know? Uh, at the end of the day, we look at results. God looks at faithfulness. God looks at obedience. What does he want you to do? How can you be successful? Be obedient. That's what he's concerned with. And let me confess something. I have, I have, in preparing for this lesson, I've hit so many walls and I go to God like to fix it. Like, hey God, we don't want to waste this time up here. Give me something good. Give me something good. Get the juices flowing, the creative juices. Give me something that's going to hit these guys right where they are. And you know what? I'm not focused on relationship with God at that point, but God still wants relationship with me. We are children of God. We're not tools in God's celestial woodshed. You know, it's not like, oh, there's David Breedlove. He's a hammer. I need a hammer to nail some nails in. Gosh, if I can't find a hammer, I'm not going to be able to nail these nails in, so I need a hammer for my hammer section over here. Or I need a merciful person with the gift of mercy. Gosh, where can I find one of those? We think of ourselves as resources to God. We're children of God. We're adopted. We're co-heirs with Christ. Uh, That's important to know. He's our heavenly father. He's not a means to accomplish our ends or to change our circumstances. I love this verse. Write this verse down on your handout. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for, for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The second application point, circumstances will always affect our relationship with God. And there's two ways I've listed here. One, they can strengthen our faith. They can build up our relationship. When we're up against overwhelming odds, and we put our faith in God, that builds our relationship with God. It, it informs our understanding as to who he is and what he's capable of and how much he loves us. God shapes our faith through circumstances. These are your blanks. He purifies, just like Elijah, he purifies our faith of impurities. Uh, and he develops the faith. Now, this is key. He develops the faith of others through you. Just like Elijah and the widow and her son, he reveals himself to others through you. So when you're in a famine, when you're in a drought, and he sends you to some helpless widow in in some Gentile town 70 miles north, he's got a plan. He's going to make you a circumstance in their life to bless them and to draw them closer to him in relationship. Okay? 
Um, circumstances can also reveal our flaws. They, they can enslave us. That's the whole title of this thing. Slave to circumstances. If they overcome us, if they overwhelm us, then we become slaves to the circumstances we're in and we get consumed by them. Uh, they can distort our perceptions and misinform our understanding of God, ourselves, our situations, others, etc., etc., etc. Our understanding should be based on God, not on circumstances. Now listen to this. This is another one of those verb, uh, Proverbs that I love, these verses. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your circumstances and your, your, your experiences to, to inform you as to reality. You're going to get a skewed perspective every time and specifically a skewed perspective of God. Thirdly, our focus is the key. Where are your eyes? Are you focused on God? Are, are, Elijah was on Mount Carmel. Or are you focused on your circumstances? Guess what? It didn't take long for Elijah to drop down and focus on those. Uh, Focusing on God leads to faithfulness, okay? God is always focused on us, but when we focus on him, that leads to faithfulness in our lives, which builds our relationship and our trust in God and our love for God and our understanding of his love for us. Focus on his person, his power, his plan as revealed in scripture. Basically, focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ and what that means to your life and what God has saved you out of. Sin and death, focus on that. And then finally, focusing on circumstances leads to frustration always. Anytime you focus on your circumstances, you know how fast circumstances change? I mean, it's like wading into a river and planting your feet in the water that's blowing past you is your circumstances. You can blink and you've got new circumstances. Uh, If you focus on those, it's just a matter of time before you get frustrated. If you're putting your faith in those things, we can feel disappointed. We can feel doubtful. We can feel depressed. All of us, even Christians. Can I say that? Even Christians can get depressed when we start focusing on our, on our circumstances. And we do all the time. Now, guys, I want to read you a quote and then we're going to close in prayer. I found this on Bible.org and I think it's very appropriate. It's by somebody named Cricket Keith, kind of an odd name, but they have a good quote, so I'll read it. Um, Life is never certain, but one thing we can always depend on to be true, God is faithful to his children. He loves us, and because he loves us, he challenges us to grow deeper in our faith and relationship with him. Sometimes he must allow us to go through painful and difficult times in order to bring about an end result far better than we could ever have imagined. Sometimes he must discipline us when we step out of line in disobedience. At times we find ourselves enjoying the thrill of the mountaintop. Other times we experience the depth of the valley. Wherever he takes us, he has our journey of faith mapped out. He knows the future. He knows where we're going. He knows where he's taking us. He's got it mapped out. We don't need to know what's around the next corner, even though we all want to, because we all want to control it. But we must, we just need to take one step at a time, allowing him to guide us. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, um, Lord, I love you. And I know these men do too. And And yet, I pray that you would deepen our love for you. I pray that you would deepen our faith in you. 
And that just overall, God, you would restore our broken relationships with you and, 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 and give us a newfound depth in our love and our appreciation of you and our, our trusting in you, our faith in you, God. Help us not to, to, to be consumed by circumstances, whether finances or health or relationships or anything else. God, put our eyes on you and on your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen.